Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I'm checking in with a freelance journalist, a presenter, and a documentary filmmaker called Amber Hack. I came across Amber when she presented Series 2 of the BBC's brilliant true crime series, Hometown A Killing. Series 1 was presented by Mobin Azar and focused on his hometown of Huddersfield, which is what piqued my interest as a Huddersfield Town fan. Series 2 followed Amber as she went back to her hometown of Manchester to investigate the death of teenager Yusuf Mackey, who was stabbed to death. The following court case was to determine if his friend had deliberately murdered him or was a tragic accident from an argument gone too far. In this episode, we discuss the themes the series explores through a mental health lens, including why so many private school boys are gravitating towards the image of gang culture and violence involving knives and other deadly weapons, and the mental stress Amber faced from presenting the series when she knew so many of the people involved personally and had to deal with the consequences of it once the programme had aired. We also discuss anxiety she's felt in the workplace throughout her varied career and the financial challenges of being a freelancer in the industry. For Amber's mental health journey, we discuss her desire to be mentally assessed after she realised she may have ADHD and has exhibited symptoms of it throughout childhood and adulthood respectively. At time of recording, Amber has not yet been assessed, so we're not going to state on this podcast definitively that she indeed has ADHD. So this is how my check-in with Amber Hack went. Amber, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy journalism schedule to check in with me. I came across you through the brilliant documentary, Hometown, A Teenage Killing, and you absolutely loved a chat by our conversation off air, so I know this will be a great pod. First off, how are you, mate? I'm all good, my friend. It's a nice, fresh Sunday morning. Can't be it, right? How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, pal. I'm good. I'm hangover free, so uh, I'm in a good mood this morning on a Sunday as we record. We've got so much to talk about, and there are so many different issues that you cover in your professional life and also in your personal life. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show? Let's do it. Let's begin your podcast, Amber, by talking about this journalism journey you have been on for a number of years now. So take me back to the beginning first. What inspired you to get into journalism? Where did your love for presenting or storytelling or reporting come from? And the journey to where you are today? I would say, in all honesty, it's always kind of remained the same in terms of why I was sort of drawn to it and still remain drawn to it. And I think it comes just back to the fact that I've always just been really intrigued by people and how people work. And I guess as I've got older, how the mind works and and stuff like that. But in terms of like, you know, the actual journey into getting into it professionally, obviously it was always in the back of my mind that I wanted to do it as I was getting ready to like go to uni and stuff. But as you do at uni, you know, the focus there might not necessarily be on the next steps. It's just kind of on enjoying 
those years and kind of having a really good time but it was always in the back of my mind that you know I definitely wanted to be a journalist and work in kind of like the media and in some form so then yeah after I went to uni I went to Leeds uni I just did English kept it kind of really a general degree in some ways probably I was kind of pushed to do that a bit by my school I think because they for whatever reason it just wasn't really talked about like a job in the media it was kind of like they really pushed academic paths and that's why they kind of just said you know English is a good thing in case you change your mind or you decide you want to do something different you know you've got a really good solid degree there and it was kind of always really about the academics but anyway so then I did that and then I was like right it's time to kind of tailor my learning a bit more into journalism so that was when I went to Salford Uni. Media City was kind of still relatively new then with the BBC and like ITV and stuff had just moved mm. there. So the, no- the North version of Canary Wharf in a way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not quite. <laughs> not quite, but it's, I've been there a lot. And it seems a little <laughs> bit like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they did, you know, and look, I'm definitely it's brought amazing stuff to the area and the region, which is incredible. But yeah, Salford Uni, they have a base there. They have a campus in the middle of Media City. So I was like, you know what? This just feels a good fit in a lot of ways. I'm going to be kind of based in this hub. And, you know, it was very much a promise of this course that we will hook you up with people in the industry. And as we know, that is a huge part of it because I did not have any network, didn't know anybody who worked in it, obviously no family that worked in it. It was kind of really starting from scratch, to be honest. Honestly, it felt as well like it was time to grow up at that point because my whole uni experience was a lot about the social side and and I'm sure we'll come on to stuff later, but me really kind of just embracing leaving home and kind of getting independence and meeting loads of different types of people. So yeah, Salford was my year of kind of really getting my head down. And I think the tutors and the kind of ethos and the outlook there was really good. I found all my tutors were really positive they encourage like ideas they encourage people to be brave because it's quite easy when you're on a student course for example to sort of be like well I'll just do student stories you know like local news and and kind of just get stuff done for your module kind of thing like we've all been there but I tried to be really kind of like bold and ambitious about what I was doing even though it was just for a student project I was like well I'm going to try to you know, do national stories or things that are going to potentially be picked up places. And my tutors really encouraged that. And it was a first kind of, a first sort of taster of working within teams and kind of like relying on the people that you work with and everything that comes with that, which was really good as well. It, you know, it stopped being like an individual thing. We had to really like rely on each other. So yeah, I just found that that year really made a difference in terms of me also being able to make mistakes and kind of be comfortable with that and allowing myself to learn so I took a a lot away from that year to be honest and Salford still is an amazing hub for future journalists they're producing a lot of great talent there for a reason because they really invest in people I think. You told me that the biggest lesson you learned in this period before we come on to the BBC is that the biggest thing you can offer as a person and perhaps as, as a journalist is your ideas not just your degree so how did that lesson manifest as you navigated this part and then when you entered the BBC yeah definitely whenever I meet people getting into the industry and they ask me it's still never changed my advice is always that and I think 
I came from a school, like I mentioned earlier, that was very academic, very pushed, you know, traditional roots and everything was about kind of degrees and, and grades and attainment and stuff. And I kind of had to like unlearn that a bit when I got into journalism because I soon realized, yeah, obviously it's great that I have a degree in journalism. You know, it shows that you've trained and, you know, things like media law and all that stuff is really important. But actually the stuff that I started to know was making the difference was me coming up with ideas and kind of using my life experience or like the communities I'd grown up in to look at things differently and kind of offer a different lens on stories and ways to tackle things, tone that was different from other people. And as I was starting to then go to like networking events at the BBC, that was what I was starting to hear they really wanted you know obviously we talk a lot about diversity and people kind of just really focus on like skin color or socioeconomic background but for me why that is so crucial in a newsroom or in like a an organization like the BBC is because of the ideas it's not for you to sit there and and tick a box and look a certain way it is because you sort of bring a different approach to stories that really reflects the whole of our country so yeah, my advice and my learning from that has never really left me, to be fair. When you worked, or when you got in the door at the BBC, I should say, you got in through the coveted BBC Journalism Trainee Scheme, which is a scheme that even, uh, I believe, Director General Tony Hall went in through the BBC for. So in that initial year, you said that you felt you had to be a certain type of person in order to fit in at the BBC and get ahead. What did you mean by that? Yeah, again, coming back to things that sometimes you really have to like unlearn. This was another thing. I think when you join any big organisation, and I was still pretty young, I think I was probably, well, I must have been like 22, 21, 22, can't remember. You join this big organisation and not just obviously any organisation. This is the one that you grew up watching that, you know, your parents like, obviously for the for the, your parents, like the BBC is like, a kind of pinnacle of, of a media organisation. I'm aware that things have changed now, like the media is so, so much of a bigger landscape. But when we were growing up, obviously you only literally had those set few channels and the BBC was like, you know, a really big global powerhouse. So stepping into those doors for the first time, obviously you put pressure on yourself. Things have got way, way, way better in terms of what teams look like and are made up of and I actually mean that as well not just like diversity but actually age because when I first started at the BBC still a lot of people in those senior positions were quite old and there was that big gulf between you know younger talent people coming through the door and you know the decision makers and things have got better like that but when that balance is like that you do feel that you should be a certain way. And and when you're working in news, it's so fast paced. The news is just sort of changing all the time and you feel like you have to basically live, eat and breathe it. And that is, you know, you are told that that's what you need to be as a news junkie. And I think I, yeah, I felt like maybe I should talk a certain way and be a certain way. Because again, we have got a lot better at hearing different accents and different, you know, I don't even really feel like I have that much of an accent. But when I started at the BBC, I used to be quite aware of it, which sounds weird. I think a lot of people would say, you know, when you 
start as a journalist and, and if you're doing like on-air reporting and stuff you develop this bit of like a news voice like people do say that they sound different when they're on camera and they're you know you want to sound like kind of more authoritative and kind of you know speaking with credibility but I sure of I, yourself yeah 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 it was it, it was a subconscious thing this is something I've only become more yeah we all do it aware. yeah 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 mm. so yeah there was a lot of ways in which I think I was not really authentically being myself when I first started there. One thing that you began to experience, I guess, before the BBC and perhaps when you entered it, is this feeling of imposter syndrome, Amber. And you were quite keen to talk about this as, as how it's affected you throughout your career. So how did it affect your mental health at the time in this period and throughout your career as well? Yeah, it is a bugger, that imposter syndrome. <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel like everybody has, you know, their thing. And that's always been my thing, I would say. And interestingly, it only really shows up in work settings, not kind of other settings. And I, how would I describe it? So like when I first joined on like the journalism trainee scheme, you're aware of the fact that thousands of people have applied for this. And this mm. is like the BBC's flagship journalism kind of course or whatever and we were all so different on there and that's a really good thing but you kind of it's this feeling of you're going to get caught out and this sense of right okay well you might be doing really well now and you know you might have smashed that interview and people really liked you and it's almost like I'll curse myself by the things that like maybe I'm good at so you know, like I'll go into an interview and sometimes I can be quite like an open book. Like obviously I'd quite enjoy talking to people and my nerves manifest as talking more. I don't really go. (laughs) But that sort of thing would then subconsciously sometimes play out as you've just blagged people in your interview and you're good at kind of maybe being charming and winning someone over. But when push comes to shove, when it comes to the day-to-day life and the job, you're going to show yourself up and they're going to, you know, it's kind of constantly waiting for this feeling of at some point, somebody's going to pull you over to have this chat and say, we think we might've got this a bit wrong and you're not actually suitable for this role. It's quite insidious, to be honest. Like if you have this voice kind of cropping up and it's, you know, it's still there. I've not fully, fully tackled it yet. And this is what happens, you know, as you progress it can still torment you a bit. But I I know a lot of people that struggle with it in this industry. And I think just try to get better at my perspective on it, that it maybe it's a good sign to be places where you're not quite ready and you don't belong, because that is obviously where growth can happen. I want to fast forward now to when you landed a role at the now sadly decommissioned Victoria Derbyshire programme which was one that you had admired and watched a lot as a young journalist so just tell me about your experience here and as well as this you told me that you are a person who doesn't always like to say no you will say yes and then work out the rest was the quote you gave to me off air so in your early career and and in everyone's early career I guess that can certainly help you but in this period was it a helpful thing or was it perhaps a hindrance? Yeah, I think when I started a Victoria Derbyshire programme, that was obviously my first proper journalism gig then. You know, I wasn't a trainee anymore. Great start, isn't it? (laughs) uh, (laughs) Yeah, it was quite the place to step into for a first job, for better and for worse, because the team there was truly incredible. And I think, you know, when you have the advantage of working within 
of an organization like the BBC within a new team like that because it was still a relatively new program and and that meant that Louisa Compton who was the editor there mm. a powerhouse of an editor she's now mm. running stuff at, at Channel 4 and doing still amazing things but you know Louisa was very big on people with good ideas and a really you know varied team who could bring different approaches to things and that made it you know an amazing place to learn but what comes with that of course is your imposter syndrome is going to be racking up a bit. I was the youngest there, you know, obviously just stepped off a, a trainee scheme. And so you're thinking, oh my God, you know, all these people have worked in, in Millbank in politics or on Newsnight or on, you know, their like correspondence. And, you know, then there's just kind of little me who's never made even a three minute news package being asked to make 15 minute original journalism films. But that was an amazing level of trust to have been given by Louisa and, and kind of when you worked on the program 50% of our job was setting up the program for the next day and you know getting amazing guests to talk on stories and it was like even there there was an expectation that we would try to get voices on the program that nowhere else at the BBC would get and if we're going to tackle Brexit or a some political update, we're going to do it with a really original attitude that's different from the rest of the organisation. And so every day was performance. Every day was, like, we would go into news meetings and you're in front of 30 of your colleagues who, like I say, were all extremely talented. You would have half an hour, you'd get in in the morning and you'd have to digest a lot of information about stuff you may never have heard of. Like, I remember one day my story was about freehold housing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything about it, I'd never even heard of it before in my like life as a as a 22 year old who'd never bought a house. And within 30 minutes, you know, you've got your editor picking holes in that, asking, you know, really kind of like it was intense. And mm -hmm. so whilst I learned a lot, it did obviously flag like a lot of anxiety and, and a bit of self-doubt at times. So it was an absolute pressure cooker, which I don't think I'll ever learn as much as I did in that space of time. It was so formative for me. You spent two years at Vicky Dobbs. I'm going to abbreviate because <laughs> I don't actually know her, but for the purpose sure. of the podcast. But as a Manchester girl, you wanted to move back up north and so did your partner. So you decided to take the plunge to go freelance. Very big step out of your comfort zone. I've spoken to a few freelance journalists, so I, so I know the mindset of what this can be like. How big a step out of it for you? was it? And what work did you take up in this period before we come on to hometown? Yeah. So it was a combination of factors, you know, why we decided to do this. There was the fact that obviously we'd lived in London for two years and I was kind of aware of the fact that I wasn't necessarily like doing as much stories outside of London as I would have wanted to. And there might be a bit of an opportunity there. I also just wanted to kind of move closer to home and stuff yeah. and just be closer to family for a bit. But my partner, Sean, and I, we kind of made a choice together to really go all in on this freelance life. So he was working in the city in finance, but always had dreamed of being a music producer. Obviously, trying to get something like that going when you're living in London and we're both going to go freelance is near enough impossible until you really have got, you know, a good bit of workflow going. So we needed to move back up north to kind of try to make this happen. So we did that. And I think maybe in some ways, because again, at this point, I still was quite young. And I think I probably was a little bit naive in, in not maybe having enough of a plan 
about how freelance life actually works and how <laughs> to, you know, I'll talk a lot about you need to hit a sweet spot of like momentum where, yeah, you can do your bigger, longer projects, but how are you going to support yourself in between? You know, what, where are you going to earn your money to pay your bills, basically? And so at first it worked really well because I still had a really good network at Victoria Derbyshire Programme. The programme was still going then. I knew a lot of people at Strangle BBC Stories. Mm-hmm. And so at first it was like, mate, this is bloody brilliant because I can now essentially just do a story about whatever I want. I'm not limited to do something which is just like newsy or has that kind of news top line. I can now. You can do fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. Fun stuff. I could yeah. do, you know, sports stuff. I could do music stuff. Like this is the great side of freelancing. But quite quickly we had that little thing called coronavirus came around. <laughs> which obviously changed the landscape completely. And the BBC underwent a lot of change where obviously Victoria Derbyshire programme sadly was taken off air, BBC stories disbanded. And then all of a sudden, you know, your network is is kind of a bit fragmented and there isn't the money. So yeah, it became kind of tough quite quickly, like it did for a lot of freelancers during that pandemic period and a big kind of wake up call in right, I'm going to need to really kind of have a solid plan about where I'm going to get this work from to actually support myself and not, you know, just relying on these big long-term ideas because they take a long Mm. time to pull off. Well, speaking of ideas that take a long time to pull off, let's talk about your baby, shall we say, Hometown, A Teenage Killing, Series 2. It's the reason we're talking today, Amber. I absolutely loved it. And I came across it because, as I said in the intro of Mobeen and the work he did in Huddersfield in Series 1, which is my football team that I support. So naturally, I was interested in that. And given that he did such a brilliant job, he has such a natural charisma, storytelling ability. When he's doing his narrations, he he sounds out every single word. He doesn't speak too quickly. Were you anxious or did you feel that imposter syndrome about following up his work? And just tell the listeners about that application process to land the presenter role. I mean, in answer to the first part of your question, absolutely, of course. Like, I mean, not only was it my first series, my first thing that was going to go out on, you know, a big platform like BBC Three, which comes with, (laughs) you know, you're like, shit, am I actually ready (laughs) at all? You know, that is going to be imposter syndrome to the max. But with Hometown One, and I remember watching it myself and thinking everything that you thought, which is, you know, the guys, Mabine and Jez and everybody who made that first series, they came up with something that was so genuinely innovative was so critically acclaimed and deserved every accolade that they got for us. So of course, you doing a follow-up to anything is always going to be a challenge. Like you ask any director that tries to do a follow-up to like an original movie and it always comes with a pressure. But in terms of how it came about, I mean, so I was in the middle of editing a documentary I'd done in Ibiza. This was like, you know, a great thing I got to do in the first freelance life of being able to do what I wanted kind of thing. So I remember I was in the middle of this edit for this Ibiza documentary and a friend of mine who was still working in-house at the BBC forwarded me this email. And she was like, you should apply for this, you know, and if you can think of anything. And so this independent production company put out an ad and they said, we're looking for a local journalist in a city who can pitch to us a story in their local community that is really close to their heart 
And a big thing was you cannot just be interested in being on camera and being a presenter. You know, you need to be a journalist and you need to be like kind of attached to the story in some way. That's a broad remit, but also niche as well at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it had to be crime as well, which I'd never done sort of crime before. And as happens with these things, I'm sat there, there's a week to apply for it. And I'm like, oh my word, you never get this opportunity BBC Three never really advertised externally for a presenter or I'd never seen it. And it was always like the thing that I would have loved to like aim for. And I'm sat there and I'm like, I've got no ideas. Nothing is coming to me. And I'm like, why would this happen? You know, and I'm, and I'm in the middle of this edit, so I can't just give loads of time to coming up with an idea. And as often happens, it was like that weekend and I'd either gone for a walk, I was in the shower or something, you know, when your mind slows <laughs> down a bit. And I was like, oh my God, that case that case that happened earlier this year what happened with that I was like that Yusuf Mackey boy I remember my mum calling me telling me all about it everybody was talking about it I was away in in Spain doing this Ibiza documentary when the case happened and then the cogs start turning then I'm excited because I'm like it's that buzz you get the first feeling of is there still something in this to start making some calls you know I start kind of chatting to people I know get an understanding of, you know, just even where Manchester is at with knife crime and violence. And I'm like, there's something in this, you know? And so I put together this very, I'm not a technical person, but I put together this very, probably Mm -hmm. a little bit rubbish, but intricate flow chart on like word to kind of show like how my mind was thinking and connecting all these dots and you know, it's quite funny, Jez, the, the exec on the project always says, like, we didn't have anything through that was like that, you know, really. A bit of kind of like madness on a page, but... Word luckily, vomit. Professional word vomit, yeah. <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah, I would put it like that for any hair like that. <laughs> yeah, and so then, you know, things happen quickly and slowly uh, in the world of docs where next minute they're like, let's shoot a taste to tape within I don't know I can't remember was it a few days I'm not sure because there was an event that happened in Manchester and you know this is where we'll come on later to my sort of like personality type and you know how I kind of approach things but I do thrive in that kind of pressurized situation Mm. (laughs) yeah help whether that's healthy or not you know I'm I'm not sure I'm still kind of trying to understand that that's where we differ Amber (laughs) I do not like things last minute (laughs) Well, my partner is exactly the same. You know, we're completely yin and yang in in this sense. But I have always been a person where, for whatever reason, in that last minute, under the pressure, under the spotlight, something kicks in and we're like, right, it's go time. (laughs) So, yeah, that was a bit of a a theme with Hometown because it was, as you could probably imagine, very different periods of time of not much going on into intense pressure, you know how am I going to cope with this pressure Mm. (laughs) yeah it was written in the stars amber to suit you (laughs) it was a journey it was a journey for sure Let's talk about the documentary itself now. So like you said it follows the story of Yusuf Mackey who was uh, a 17 year old boy teenager and he was killed in an argument between him and his friend Joshua Molnar. They're both 17 at the time but what makes the story initially strange and this kind of challenges the viewers perhaps conscious or even subconscious bias is that they're both private school kids, they're both well off, they're both middle class to a degree, and they don't fit the stereotypical image of, shall we say, working class children from broken homes or abusive environments 
being drawn into gang violence, drawn into gang culture because gang members will will entice them in. They'll see the love that they perhaps didn't get from a, from a father figure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all those kind of stereotypes. So tell me about the issues that you uncovered in the course of this series and why this strange phenomenon is perhaps, in Manchester at least, more common than we think. Hmm. Well, the story definitely from the off just even thinking back to the reaction and, and I still remember it so well anybody you ask in Manchester in this community remembers the story they remember like where it was one of those you know you remember where you were when you when yeah, you heard yeah. what happened to Yusuf Mackey and it's so multi-layered why this story just really stood out and was kind of a ripe feeding ground for kind of investigation and, and sort of to really look at how Manchester had changed since I left so yeah, as you as you touched on there, the first thing was very much where this crime happened and the types of boys involved. So I go into this a bit in the programme, but Hale Barnes is basically where your Man City United footballers live. Molly May, that Love Islander, lives there. To give you a sense of, you know, it's a pretty flashy, wealthy place. So for someone to have been stabbed to death, a teenager, you know, to have actually been killed in a residential area outside someone's home, you know, where there are million pound houses around was completely unheard of, a first of its kind. And then with the boys involved, as you mentioned, so so Josh was the boy who killed Yusuf. He was one of his friends. You know, he he was from an extremely wealthy family. Adam was one of Yusuf's friends who was there that night. He also was from a really wealthy family. Yusuf was from a very working class family. And this is where the kind of, I guess, the slight differences that people really focus on with this story come into play. Because as a victim, you know, Yusuf was a working class boy, but he was in a, a very privileged world. There we go. Sorry, cold. that was my mistake. Yeah, I should have. Yeah, no, it's, no, it's yeah. cool because it is. Yeah, no, it's, it's complicated in this way. Mm. And that's what's why this story is so unique. But he had got into this world because of the school that he went to. So he won a scholarship, extremely intelligent young lad. Yeah, won this scholarship to Manchester Grammar, which is, you know, one of the best boys' schools, private schools in the country. So yeah, then the reason why we thought there was something to kind of look further into was the fact that people in Manchester, and still do, feel really dissatisfied by how this story played out there's still to this day people feel unanswered questions about what actually happened that night and a lot of this comes from the way that the court case played out Joshua admitted to stabbing Yusuf through the heart but he said that he had acted in self-defense and he was acquitted of murder and manslaughter and it raised a lot of questions about privilege in Manchester in the court systems and just how we perceive young boys based on where you know you're born and what you look like and how you talk and and so really there was two questions I've set off with in this series it's is there something going on in Manchester that we haven't ever seen before was this tragedy and what happened to Yusuf a freak was it a one-off or is there this wider culture of these young lads carrying knives rich kids mm. private school kids and then I wanted to know and try to look into these allegations of privilege. In classism. What, yeah. Yeah. Classism and, and, yeah. and kind of understand, you know, how similar cases were playing out in, you know, the other side of the tracks, really. Mm. So it was, yeah, 
a lot we set out to look into and, and did mm. sort of unpick. We're going to talk about a few highlights because obviously the series is quite long and the listeners can go and watch the series in full to get the full picture. But I want to pick out a couple of highlights now. So there's one point in the series where you're interviewing a couple of local kids and just about the case and what they know about it. And a group of fellow teenagers pedal past them on bikes, BMXs, whatever you want to call it, possibly in an intimidating way. You can't really exactly tell on the on the film. And they give off the impression that they are perhaps roadmen or wannabe roadmen, in essence. And then your interviews then, interviewees, I should say, then say to you that they're all private school kids too. So did that give you a bit of cognitive dissonance at the time when you were still kind of uncovering these issues? Yeah, I would definitely say so. Because, you know, before that point, it had been I was making a lot of calls. I'd just arrived back in the city and, you know, chatting to people my age, people were kind of, I don't know, they were almost kind of laughing off this idea that maybe rich kids carried knives. Like they kind of just thought it's probably not happening. And there is this element of people in that hail Altrincham community sort of thinking this stuff doesn't happen on our front doorstep. And yeah, like I say, kind of laughing it off. Denial. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and just because we're not looking there, right? There's no police presence there looking for these things. And we aren't profiling young boys there to know if they're carrying knives, which obviously is a very silent, hidden thing. But yeah, the, and what we found is pretty much every time I went out to talk to young people on the streets, they would look at me like I was asking the most obvious question. Like they would be like, of course, people around here are carrying knives. Like to them, it was such a part of their daily reality. And that really woke me up to certain things. And like in Manchester, for example, and I'm sure that this is the case in other kind of big cities, even if you are a private school rich kid, the fashion is so different now. And the way young lads want to talk is really different. Maybe it's not as, you know, when I was growing up, posh rich lads would wear, you know, Jack Wills and like, like <laughs> I don't know, what the posh the Hollister and stuff and talk a certain way. Whereas now the fashion is very different. So maybe even outwardly, that whole roadman kind of look. Trap is... star. Yeah. Trap yeah. star and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that's just, you know, that's just youth culture that happens. I'm not mm. kind of like being like judgmental when I say that. But mm. then what started to unravel was, you know, we were getting the incidents and the actual sort of things happening that proved that this was very much a worrying growing trend there were stabbings happening in Altrincham, stop and searches happening on like we call it the met but it's like the tram system that goes within trafford and the kind of like posher borough and they were stopping and starting to do stop and searches there and finding kids with knives there was a stabbing at hale train station when we were there so this is no longer you know just a, a zeitgeisty kind of thing we happened upon like this was starting to get real Mm. and it was happening you spoke there about what factors are in play as to why these rich kids are essentially carrying knives at, at its essence and you interviewed a young man asking him this question and why he thought the demographic had flipped at least in manchester and we're just talking about manchester here so he said it was to do with perhaps achieving social status putting on a costume the idea of gang culture rather than actually the reality of it do you believe that's true first of all or are there other factors at play here? For example, and I'm just spitballing, social media, failing of parents to monitor their children, or something else entirely? I definitely think it's more than one factor, for sure. And to give a bit of background about how I kind of got this understanding is, you know, you have to understand with, with these series, like what ends up being in the final cut 
is such a small percentage of like the amount of people you actually talk to in the work that you do and for me a really important part of all this was I knew I was going to have to gain the trust of some of these young lads and I really did not want it to be a series you know knife crime has been quite well reported in the news but it always seems to be a story that's told by their parents or teachers or MPs or police, you know, talking about it from a bit more of a detached perspective. And it's not to say their opinions aren't really important because they are. But for me, I knew it was going to have to be a lot of trust gained to really understand this. And so I did actually put a lot of my own time off camera into getting to know some of these young lads, including people who were friends with Josh and Yusuf. And, you know, it was quite a telling experience because sometimes I would go and meet them they would obviously instinctively at first think I was working for the police they would say you're obviously a fed check they wanted to check if I was wearing a wire no seriously there was a lot of paranoia oh I can imagine yeah yeah I can imagine a lot of paranoia and I found that as I was getting to know a couple of like his friends it was better when I was talking to them either more one-on-one or in a smaller group because the peer pressure of like when it was a big group was everybody just kind of wanted to take the mick more than actually speak Mm. properly. But as I started to get to know them more, I really started to understand that there was just a lot of fear and a lot of anger. And the reality was like with, you know, for example, that lad you're talking about who I I sit and speak to and, and he kind of opens up about some of the stuff, you know, a lot of his anger was coming from the fact that he just wanted to protect his family you know they obviously think when they're going out onto the streets and some of these kind of threats are happening is that ultimately it might come back on their family and something bad might happen to those that they love and you know I really got an opportunity to kind of peel back some of those layers and understand that vulnerability that a lot of them do have and of course when you are a younger person we all know what it's like because even I had my own version of your like fight or flight system is triggered like when you're around this stuff and you do become more hyper aware of like am I in danger am I safe so if you're a young person who genuinely believes that they are their life might be in danger every day why would you not carry a knife you don't want to be caught without one do you like if you actually believe that and obviously yes then social media was a huge huge part of it pretty much you know every incident we went to that was involving a teenager had some form of like social media involvement and Snapchat was a big thing. When I was meeting some young lads who were from Bowdoin, which is a neighbouring place to hail, again, football is paradise. They're telling me that only that morning and they're actually showing me threats that they're getting. And they're like, you know, we were just eating our cornflakes with our mum and someone saying to us that they're going to kind of shank us after school. And showing me people that they hire knives from on Snapchat who'll come and they basically dig it into the ground near your house and you come and pick it up and you pay them and send them money. It was wild, honestly. Really, really, truly crazy. You spoke there about fight or flight and there was a couple very tense fight or flight moments that you had, Amber, during filming and off camera. So the first one that was caught was when... And you did very well to keep your calm during this, because I'm not sure I would have probably done this. You were interviewing some lads about the rising gang culture outside of the school. It's a completely leafy area. You know, it's the equivalent of, say, Chelsea in, in West London, or it's the equivalent of something like that. And in slang terms, they got moved to by some kids. And I think if the cameras hadn't been rolling, 
They could have got jumped. They could have got rushed. They could have possibly got even something worse happened to them. Just take me back to that moment from your perspective and your cameraman's. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. A lot of people have asked me about this scene because they kind of, when they watch it, they think the same, like, how did you, you feel the tension <laughs> run away and whatever? And I think like it sometimes it's actually quite hard to remember fully as well, because when you are in a moment like that, you're very in the moment and you're very, you know, your your instincts are quite alert. So sometimes it is is quite hard to fully remember. But with that I think the tensions were a little bit high in the area as well because I mentioned there had been a stabbing at the train station just literally the weekend before and that was a teenager and obviously you know when you're making a production with a production company and and for somewhere like the BBC we obviously are trained to understand if something happens and you know you know how to react to volatility and we do what's kind of called like a dynamic risk assessment which is really difficult in the moment because you can't really talk as a team. You know, you don't want to kind of exacerbate and make something worse by bringing in loads of kind of, I don't know what the word is, like bureaucracy. Talk. Yeah, 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 exactly. Bureaucracy kind of thing. And so it was about us using our instincts. And because the camera is rolling, of course, the team are sort of being led by how I am. Like, obviously, if I then, you know, I was starting to back off and they got a sign that I didn't really want to be there, they would find a way. We have, like, a safe word if we kind of wanted to to pull. But I think because at that point, I had done so much of this spending time with these young lads and and understanding how they worked. It was kind of like I, I didn't want... I know it sounds weird, but I didn't want them to know that I was really really frightened I kind of wanted them to know I'm here with you obviously we're going to try our best to keep you safe and and if you see that scene they they are quite literally asking us to keep them safe which is quite I mean it's really shocking when they're saying Mm. if you keep filming us they won't do anything you know and to be kind of all of a sudden in that responsibility because this young lad obviously you can't see his his face because we anonymize them because they're underage but I can And he is terrified. This is a fully legitimate threat. Like he is actually scared that this guy is is about to come and stab him. And so you're kind of just trying to really keep your calm, but not go to, you know, adult and micromanage the situation. Mm. It was kind of just trying to like be in that moment with them and and just kind of trying to read body language and sort of assess if at any point it is going to obviously shift into something legit but yeah it was it was really frightening and I think it's only afterwards you kind of realize and process how frightened you actually were in that moment it almost felt like you were kind of taking on like a like an older sister sort of role like a very protective sort of role for them did it feel like that at the time well I am an older sister to one younger well, brother so yeah. you well probably be. channeled that <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it did feel like that. And it wasn't, you know, not a parent or I'm not here to be a BBC journalist. And sometimes that comes with challenges, by the way, like not to veer off on too much of a tangent. But, you know, I had to be aware of as well that I'm not there to be people's mates. Like that's, you know, also a bit of a challenge for me sometimes because I do like to really, you know, be on a level with people and how I kind of like talk to them. And these are obviously, you know, younger vulnerable lads so you do have to be aware of the fact that I'm not obviously there to be their friend but yeah it did very much feel like an older sister kind of moment where I was a certain like responsibility of like protecting someone but not you know 
on lads we've got to you know stop being silly or you know i don't know like parent instinct kicking in because that would not have helped things i don't think no perhaps a scary moment for you personally amber less so for the the kids because they were they weren't involved at this point was when you and your cameraman were actually chased by a teenager you didn't know this at the time but he actually had a knife so just tell me back to the events of that day and at this point did you question whether it was or worth it really given the risks it was putting to you yeah so to give a bit of context this was very very early on in uh, the hometown kind of filming process so we didn't have our full team in place yet we were actually just reacting to an unfolding bit of breaking news that had happened we kind of just wanted to go down and speak to a few people in the community to get something which we could then build on into like a, a bigger part of the series further down the line and so it was me and my cameraman Martin went down uh, to this area of South Manchester where to be perfectly honest I do feel at home you know I didn't grow up in that part but I know a lot of people in the community there my school was quite close to there it's a very mixed South Asian Afro-Caribbean Somali sort of neighborhood there had been this really really tragic stabbing of a 17 year old he had been ambushed by a few other teenagers and he'd basically been stabbed to death down an alleyway which was right outside people's homes and it happened you know in broad daylight on this summer evening when they were playing a game of football And so it was so kind of, you know, a really senseless act of violence that felt like it was not over really much. And it had been this very spontaneous event. So we go down and and everything had been going pretty well. I don't want to use the word well, because that sounds wrong. But we were having really proactive conversations with people in the community. And they were opening up to me about this tension that had been building between young lads. But Maybe naively, I don't know. I was told that this was between friends at first. I didn't have any idea or indication that there was any kind of like gang violence that was going on and that there had been, you know, quite a lot of build up to this stuff, which you can't. How can you know that when you turn up spontaneously to a scene and are are talking to people? Anyway, we probably maybe stayed later into the evening than we should have done. And this was in the summer, so it was late sunset. So it must have been around 10 p.m. maybe. And we were filming and there'd been some flowers left to the victim. And a young young lad comes over and he started asking me, you know, what are you up to? And and I was explaining, you know, I'm here to kind of try to understand like why Mahmoud has lost his life. And if there's something, you know, we need to do better as a community. And, and he was saying to me, he was my best friend. And then he said, oh, could I talk to you a second? And I was like, yeah, of course, you know. So we start walking and he looked like there was something he wanted to get off his chest. We walk around the corner and next minute, three older men come over to us and say, don't speak to her. Stop speaking to her. She's not your friend. The media are not our our friends around here. And I was like, hang on a second. You don't even know who I am or, you know, anything of what I'm trying to do. But because it was kind of like that, then there was some friction kind of injected into this situation. And I think it freaked this young lad out a bit because his manner just switched completely. To the point where he was like, you need to get out of here. You can only film these flowers if if I give you permission. And again, probably not dynamically risk assessing enough. That was probably the point where we should have maybe walked away. But, you know, we did have a right to be there. We were allowed to film these flowers. You know, we weren't kind of bothering anyone. And I could kind of just see as we were getting these shots that in the background, he was kind of lurking around a few of the like sort of alleyways and and this area of South Manchester it's like all interconnected with like alleyways 
you can kind of hide in between and then kind of come back out again. And I just started to notice that he was kind of following us, basically. And next minute, he started to actually run towards us. So obviously, then something does kick in where you're like, this this person is kind of coming for us. And luckily, our car was quite nearby. So we did leg it. And this is, you know, we didn't kind of capture it on camera properly because you're not really thinking of that in the moment. But we were able to watch it back afterwards and kind of zoom in on on a freeze frame. And you can see that he's carrying a knife. He's got a knife in his, um, I don't know, like like basically down his pants. And then you see him running with it afterwards. And there's like, a, you know, you can quite clearly see like a glint of something. And I don't know, it was a first real wake up call to, I guess, how senseless this violence can actually be in a moment sometimes. And it is very spontaneous. It is very when the emotions are high and someone is, you know, a younger, vulnerable person is carrying a knife. Things can happen quite instinctively. Yeah, it was totally frightening. And and of course, it was something that as a team, then we had to take really seriously. And, you know, from then on, we, we had security and stuff when we were doing certain things. But I think for me, because like I say, I can be quite renegade. I love being in a moment. I don't kind of feel frightened easily of things. I think for me, the biggest fear was I just didn't, you know, I just didn't want anything to happen to my family. That was the big thing for me because my family still work and have businesses in these areas. And, you know, a lot of my like extended family live there. So we're in the heart of this stuff. It would take someone two seconds to find out who, you know, my dad is or where my uncle lives in that same neighborhood, which is Mm. quite freaky. And if it starts to weigh on your mind, yeah, it's, it's quite dangerous for your psyche. Like you said, Amber, obviously the documentary was very personal to you. You relied on quite a lot of your own personal contacts for interviews and sources. So during the production, it was obviously a a quite a high stress, quite high pressure time for you. After the production, how was your mental health and how did you balance that with your work-life balance at the time as well? Yeah, it was really challenging. I think when you're working on something for such a long time, because it was, you know, this was filmed over the course of two years. And when the crew weren't there, it was still on my mind. You know, I was still trying to kind of what we call build access, which is, you know, try to build further access within a community and kind of encourage more people to speak and, and whatever. But that comes at a cost. And I think I learned a lot of lessons, you know, moving forward into what I'm doing now and other projects with having boundaries with stuff. because. Mm. Yeah, it's a plus to obviously be going to see people on your own. You know, they trust you have good intentions. You know, they know you're not just here when the camera's on. You know, you are invested in them. And that's something that will always be really important to me. Contributors and the people who let us into their lives are really important to me. But again, it's me having healthy boundaries where I'm not there to be someone's friend. I'm not there to be someone's therapist. I was getting into situations where obviously you know you are really in people's lives and the twists and turns of things and you know like an example comes to my mind a family I'd got to know who were really desperately trying to get their young lad out of gang life and you know pretty much every twist and turn they were calling me about I'd go and see them and it's it's just it's quite a lot of emotions to get wrapped up in and like another example, when we were covering this gang trial of this killing that had happened in Side, you know, I was both having conversations with the family of the victim in one end of the corridor, 
who really wanted, you know, me to fairly portray Mahmoud, who had died. But then I was in the room every day. And this is all, you know, on your own. I didn't have anyone with me. I was going in completely on my own with the families of the perpetrators, who I also wanted, you know, the opportunity to kind of show how they had ended up in this situation. And if maybe they were victims in other ways in their lives. And balancing that and doing it all kind of like on your own and being really scared of if that comes out or is not handled right or becomes volatile, you know, where does that leave me? Because it's not just these families, you know, this they are part of a bigger sort of gang network. You know, when things are about disrespect and, and stuff like that, that does weigh on your mind a lot. And so... Yeah, it was. I mean, when I think back to it now, it's it's we you know we covered so many different cases as well, and like with Yusuf's case, you know, there's a lot of high profile wealthy families involved. There's a lot of legal challenges of telling these stories when a verdict has been reached, and the pressure of kind of trying to get that right. So there was there was a lot on my shoulders, and you know, I was the only one in our team who was from Manchester as well. So you feel it even more because of the fact that this is obviously all unravelling on your doorstep and you have involved people that you know. Maybe I'll never do anything like it again, you know, (laughs) because there is only one hometown, so to speak, you know, and one intense story like that. But it it was a good lesson in, at the end of the day, it's good to be invested in your stories. It's good to be obsessive, because that's a plus to have as a journalist. But there is more to life than just these teleprograms and they come and they go and they're not, you know, I mean, half the things that my subconscious feared were going to happen to me never, obviously never even came close to it. But when there is, you know, that you're scared for backlash, you're scared for violence, of course, that starts to manifest in 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 your mind in some ways, because I'm quite like a go, go, go person. I don't really have like meltdowns or get angry easily I think I internalize stuff a lot and it always comes out as it does for most people when I'm trying to go to sleep when my mind is slowed down there isn't the phone there isn't the you know we're not filming we're not out and about rushing around it was when my mind would start to slow down and I was by myself trying to go to sleep that all of this stuff would come up and I think at its peak and luckily this was only like a really short window of where maybe I think it's as we were getting close to the editing and stuff was you know starting to that's when the crunch starts to happen I remember at one point I actually in the middle of the night darted out of bed into the living room was looking for my notepad so this is like so crazy part of hometown is like you know we were always like going out and about and I would be writing in my like little reporter's notepad and stuff but there was something clearly that my psyche was like in kind of threat go mode. And it felt like I was having to like run away from something. It was a really, really weird feeling. Because I started working with a therapist for a couple of months, like in the build up to it going out and stuff. And she was like, this is just when our fight or flight is obviously really triggered. Your cortisol is high. Your mind is still sort of working through things in the middle of the night, obviously, when you're sleeping and stuff. And so that darting out of bed was obviously a sign that yeah something was kind of like going on up there like I was I was kind of worried and and frightened for things. Before we move on when the documentary did come out how did you feel when it had finished were you relieved and did you feel like you made an impact with it? 
I think a big lesson to kind of come back to that point about, you know, you make these series and documentaries feel like everything, especially when it's like, you know, your first real big thing. And you put a lot of pressure on it and you put a lot of expectation about so many things that you you should achieve and stuff. And what I'm actually really proud of is the fact that we 100% did happen upon an issue that no one was looking at. Nobody had been, this was a zeitgeisty kind of way of telling knife crime and nobody had ever sort of, yes, we've had conversations about privilege and accusations of bias in the criminal justice system. But nobody had ever done it with a kind of real tale of two cities comparison of, you know, a wealthy, you know, when a wealthy boy kills someone, what is the language used in that court case? And we did that. And that was ultimately when people kind of watched it, they were like, wow, this really opens your eyes to like some of the kind of realities on things. And, you know, even people just seeing things on their front doorstep and it being told through that really personal perspective resonated with people. And, you know, we had political movements on things like the um, parliamentary board on knife crime. A lot of the people who were MPs who were sort of senior roles in that said that we need to kind of relook at our approach to knife crime, make sure we're factoring some of your findings into like the um, next kind of, not like syllabus, but, you know, the papers that they put out and things and, you know, been asked to talk in so many schools, pupil referral units, I've heard about it being shown in youth offenders, lots of different things. The best thing, honestly, Freddie, was the young lads who I'd met in it being like, do you know what? You did actually do what you said you were going to do. And, you know, doing things from an impartial perspective is really bloody difficult these days. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to be an impartial journalist And people kind of understanding as well that when it comes to court cases, for example, I cannot question beyond what a jury has heard and believe, you know, it's, it's, we're we're not, we cannot legally do that. And people, you know, will always have their story that you want, they want you to tell. And obviously, like I said about, you know, the challenges of representing the victims and the perpetrators, because I knew both of them in certain cases, all you can hope is that you have given them an opportunity to air their feelings fairly but it's not my job to sit there and give my opinions on things and to inject you know what I think about it but that's really hard Mm. really difficult in this day and age where everybody wants to know whose side you're on and what you think it's really challenging and people forget that in the center of all that criticism there is a real person who does have feelings I, I might not be able to show it you know but I do Let's briefly talk about issues in the industry you wanted to discuss, Amber. So the first one is feedback and how you feel that sometimes the industry is collectively quite bad at that. So tell me about this through a mental health lens. Yeah, I mean, you know, with our industry, there's all the obvious things that we struggle with that everyone else does, like work-life balance, you know, pay issues fairness harassment whatever it might be it's all there it's all present in our industry but what I found is really different to other industries and you know my partner has worked in like a corporate background and he's like it is quite staggering you know we're not that good at providing good feedback for people and ways in which people can grow and there's a lot of fear particularly like with telly different to when I worked in-house at the BBC 
obviously you make big documentaries with independent production companies and it's a totally different model of how things work but everybody is a freelancer and they work between different projects and they'll get taken on for you know a set amount of time to make this program then they've got to find the next thing because everything is about reputation and everything is about you know are you easy to work with are you good to work with there's a lot of fears around people kind of speaking out to execs or editors or whoever it might be because they just don't want to look difficult. I just get this sense, you know, with a, with a few things that I've worked on, that because everybody else thinks nobody wants to speak out and there's this culture of kind of just get on with it, suck it up and get on with it, we're really hindering ourselves from progressing and kind of, you know, making ourselves better as a team. We just need to talk about things more. And we don't do things at the end of projects like exit interviews or ways in which we can give feedback. And it sometimes you can feel just a little bit like hung out and to dry, like after you've done something for a really long period of time. And it's something that pretty much everyone I talk to in our industry thinks that we need to get better at is is feedback because it's it's essential to growth. And being able to express yourself as well, I think is really important. The next issue and the final issue we're going to discuss is the uh, very uncomfortably British subject of pay as a freelancer. So just tell me about your experience here and also why this is something that many women in the industry find quite uncomfortable raising. So what are the reasons? Is it, like you said, that fear of being seen as difficult? Is it an unwillingness to be assertive, fear of losing income? What can you tell me here? Well, I think it's loads of different things wrapped up in this pay thing. And I think at first with me, it was just naivety and immaturity and just not, you know, you don't have that experience of talking about pay a lot. Because mm. when you work worth, in a nine yeah. to five, yeah, yeah, you don't. You, or there's a set space for you to talk about it because you're going to talk about a promotion or goals and whatnot. Whereas when you're a freelancer, it's a literally a wild west of you are going it alone, mate. Like you're just on your own. And there's also a bit of an insidious thing in our industry where you feel really lucky to be in it and it's almost like you are just told that it's a labor of love like you don't do everyone's like you don't do this job for work uh, for money I should say like you do it for purpose and and meaning and that's true that's true people always kind of are quite surprised you don't get paid anywhere near what people expect like even when you're an on-screen presenter you know it's it's not loads of money as such so there is an element of you are doing things for purpose and meaning but I would say like I've started to understand that I have to kind of be savvy about this and understand that pay is related to like self-esteem and kind of really valuing your work and your approach to things and it's quite difficult like when you're doing something like presenting or journalism or whatever because it's not a hard skill like I don't know like camera work or editing or whatever it's kind of like it's quite abstract in what you mm. offer it's, it's not so, a, one of those hard trades like you know like an engineer or something like that yeah I get you mean yeah exactly yeah so you know like if you were like a content creator on Instagram or whatever you know they will like know how much they charge per post if you want to basically utilize their approach to things their tone their audience whatever it might be but in our industry it's you know it's not kind of quite like that and people do have agents for these reasons and and stuff like that which can be a helpful idea but it's it's really difficult because these projects as well are quite bottomless pits of time like it's very hard to quantify how long they're going to take and for example with me 
as I'm finding my ideas, because I'm not like necessarily just a presenter who gets wheeled in to present something like I do do things like that. But a lot of these stories are mine that I've kind of found myself. And so you have to do a lot of legwork up front for free to look into the idea because nobody pays me to just sit at home to look into ideas. Obviously, that's just me doing that. But it's a necessary part of me being able to find it to then pitch it. But I've had to learn lessons of like knowing when is the right time to let go of a story because I have done that in the past, holding on to them for a long time. And you you have to kind of be quite clinical a bit about the process. What else have I learned about freelancing? I feel like just a lot, to be honest. The reason why I think women find it more difficult and like female colleagues that I have is it's a self-esteem thing that just takes a long time as we're kind of rewriting the balances with gender equality, I suppose, and and kind of growing up maybe with parents where you didn't see your mum do that as much because the generation was different. I was kind of brought up and my dad can talk about money quite easily because he works in business and stuff. Like he's just quite, he takes the emotion out of things, yes. which is important yeah, yeah. and doesn't make it really personal because with me and obviously I've got better with this but when that imposter syndrome is creeping in as well and if you're bringing in trying to ask for more money you're also contending with your imposter syndrome that's telling you you're not worth that so why would you you know you're just lucky to be here don't give them more reason to sort of try to get rid of you or not want to take you on for the next thing but yeah it's it's getting there I am getting there with understanding that it's important for self-esteem it's important to at the end of the day you are offering a service a profession a work it isn't always about bringing the the personal feelings to things but yeah it is tough it's really Mm. tough and as a final question before we move on what has hometown and this wider journalism journey throughout the years you've been doing it taught you about yourself amber oh man where to start really um god i think like definitely I think I've taught myself I have so much more resilience than I give myself kind of credit for. You'd be surprised um, how many how many times guests say that answer. <laughs> oh man, because like, sometimes I just think, oh Amber, you're like such a sop, and you're so like, why are you so emotional all the time, and you know, wear your heart on your sleeve and stuff. But equally, when I look back on certain things with hometown, like intimidating situations where. I would walk into, you know, some of these high profile court cases, I'd be on my own and there would be top newspapers there, big camera crews, operations, you know, and there would be some instances where people would try to catch you out on things and be like, oh, so who are you talking to? Have you found out anything about this? And I'm not asking them those questions, you know, it's only like in one direction. That can be really tough because you know, you think, is it because I'm younger? Do they think I don't really deserve to be here? You know. But I know that I've reached a certain level of maturity because I was like, at the end of the day, we're all trying our best and everybody wants to kind of get a good story and everybody wants to get good access. That's that's part of like the deal here. But I'm proud that as intimidating and tough as those moments were, I kind of didn't let it sort of knock me. And even understanding like when I entered this industry, like people just give you this perception all the time that it's so hyper competitive and you've got to be really dog eat dog. And that's just not really who I am. Like, I think there's a healthy level of competitiveness that's good and, you know, it's good to strive for things. But I found like working and collaborating and being like a good team player and like being a nice person to people 
really helps and and I think like probably what maybe a lot of people do say to you sometimes I think I've definitely learned that we put all this meaning and like attach so much like my life is going to be great when I finish this or I win this award or I get like it's always about this external like validation and you know everything's going to feel great when I've totally learned that the magic is like it's totally in the journey and kind of all these mistakes I've made the growth I've made you know looking back on all that that is I just feel like life is just a journey of basically continuous mistakes growth failure some wins which are amazing but those are the things I take the valuable stuff from it isn't like the awards or the accolades and stuff we've talked about amber the journalist the presenter the documentary filmmaker now i want to dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey amber so i ask all my special guests this question on this topic first take me back to early life teenage years and were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint who's the amber we meet here (laughs) Um, so yeah, my God, I've done a lot of thinking about little Amber because I'm fascinated with, you know, psychology and sort of the story of like who we are and things. And interestingly, I do have like quite a lot of gaps of memory about things like from when I was younger and I've kind of understood why that might be the case. Cause like we do sometimes do when we're kind of struggling with life, we can like disassociate. So sometimes not remembering is a way because your mind was kind of trying to keep you safe basically and like for me looking back on like growing up and stuff like I come from quite like a mishmash like cultural background which I think has played a big part in like who I am so my dad is Pakistani so I have like mixed South Asian English family so my mum's mum was a white scouser I have proper like you know Mancunian Salford English family on one side and then you know on my dad's side they're a bit more traditional South Asian Muslim family so you kind of grow up with two quite contrasting like ways of being and ways in which you think you should be and obviously growing up as a young girl in that as well was a bit confusing at times I would say because I'm very lucky that both my mum and dad are very open-minded they're very you know kind of carved a bit of a path of their own and they always sort of wanted that for me you know like for example I've been going to like football with my dad since I was probably about nine years old you know so kind of exposed to maybe more like male environments and things and you know he's never quietened my voice always kind of allowed me to like be who I kind of want to be but it's still tough when you're part of a community and a culture and my mum and dad you know are a bit more than I am because I've left Manchester and you know gone around and done various things but they're still quite embedded in a South Asian community and there still is certain expectations of what a young woman Mm. should be and do you know things that like were kind of expected of you that maybe go against this independent person I was mm. in one instance but you know don't do this and don't do that people checking in on you doing the, the phone calls and all that yeah, yeah 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 and it's you know I think when we understand things like with our parents and things like that as you get older and I have a more compassionate view towards things because I think we have access to so much more information now so much more kind of like you know like we question ourselves a lot more and our parents have always just been trying their best at the end of the day and that 
what's the word I would use? Overprotectiveness and that sometimes definitely what felt like restrictive and kind of Smothering. too many. Sort. Yeah, mm. exactly, mm. exactly. I think it definitely made me a bit of a rebel that I had <laughs> You and me both. Um, mm. Yeah, you know, I've often wondered why I ended up like that. And I never really understood it. But obviously it is some element of kind of trying to push against things. So I think all this sort of like multi-layered identity crisis, sort of trying to work out your place in the world, definitely gave me a few, would I describe them as sort of survival mechanisms? And one of them is actually being someone who's really curious about people. So it's mm-hmm. something that's ended up being, you know, a part of my my story and my journey and my job and stuff. But I do wonder, looking back, if that adaptation and that sort of being a mm. bit of a social chameleon which disorientates you you know if you're a social chameleon who is quite good at adapting to like everyone around you and who everyone else is you know who are you in all of that so that's been something I've kind of had to to understand and you know make sure you're not doing things just to kind of be liked and for validation and things and to make other people feel heard mm. that's something I've kind of had to unpick a bit understand why I ended up that way. Before we move on, a question that's just come to mind here is, so my background, Amber, I I went to two very, very different schools. I went to, my secondary school was 60-40, I would say, sort of white to black, very socially conservative, rough, in a part of Essex called Romford, which is uh, still rough now, to be honest. And my sixth form was all Asian boys, and I was one of 10 white lads. So very different cultures. And what I quickly learned was a lot of the stereotypes that their parents wanted them to be for jobs was true. It was they all wanted them to be doctors or lawyers or engineer was sort of like the just about just about good. So was your journalism desire almost a bit of rebelliousness as well? Not against my parents, but yes, in terms of the wider society, for sure. And I'll tell you why. And things have got a lot better, you know, in terms of now maybe I am actually doing it and I've managed to pull certain things. Because you're getting paid. That's why. (laughs) You show them the money. (laughs) How may I ask? Well, interestingly, keeping it general, obviously I'm not going to mention names, but I remember it was my first insight a little bit into this perception in the community where it was like, yeah, but being a female journalist involves questioning things and like, you know, having a voice. And I remember like a sticking point was, yeah, but that means you're going to have to travel and like be away a lot. And it's not, you know, a job which is a nine to five where you're still at home within a community. And it was such a first time for me to be like, yeah, because that's not fucking who I am at all. Like that's not actually my aspirations whatsoever you know, even taking a career thing out of it. It's like, I am a travel person. I get itchy feet, you know, I'm a very kind of like nomadic person and how I like to kind of approach my life. You know, it's a little bit an antithesis of like what is in our culture. Like, for example, my dad, I love him so much. I'm such a daddy's girl, but he honestly thinks if I haven't come home in two weeks, it's been six years. (laughs) Or if I don't, you know, this is something that I've got a bit better at. But like, you know, when I was a bit younger and still at uni and stuff, like if I didn't speak to them every day, it was like that was a problem. But that's not really that healthy. And that's not kind of encouraging independence. Independence. Um, Yeah. 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 
you know, like I said, I've always been a bit of a rebel. Maybe I have always been quite different. I'm not saying that that's a good thing. It comes with its downsides, of course. But yeah, it's taken a long time, I think, for, you know, for us to even see that representation of South Asian women, particularly young women in like jobs like journalism and the media and because, yeah, that was the feedback I got anyway growing up was that it was, yeah, but, mm. you know, she's going to come across as, like, difficult and speaking out on things and express it's expressing. Mm. That's what I think mm. it came to. Yeah, I've never actually I, said that aloud, to be honest. It's a good question. I've never really kind of thought about it, but that's what I would um, say it is, yeah. I'm glad it came to me in the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, there's loads of South Asian female journalists now. I could name I could name about 10 off the top of my head, to be honest. So yeah. it's definitely getting better. Obviously, it's not there yet before anyone cancels yeah. me. But we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there, of course, yeah. I want to move on to the main part of your mental health journey, Amber, which is your experience of symptoms related to ADHD. Now, I say this very carefully because you are not diagnosed yet, but you have been trying to get assessed at time of recording for potentially having it. So when did these symptoms start? How did they manifest? And how did they affect your mental health as a child, teenager, and now adult? Yeah, and I'm wary of treading carefully with it as well, because yeah, I haven't been diagnosed and I don't kind of ever want to to sort of say or dabble in things that disrespect or kind of uh, don't appreciate people who are living with ADHD, but everyone's journey is very personal with this stuff. Like I would say the symptoms have always been there. They have always been there. I mentioned about me being someone who thrives in chaos. and That's a symptom. <laughs> if you ask my mum and dad, it would boggle their mind why or how I would just be drowning in pieces of paper at five o'clock in the morning. Like literally, I would just pull all nighters, you know, and I'd be you know, like staying up really late the night before the exam. Or even now, like if I'll go home, and my dad will be giving me a lift to the train station. I'll come down, get a car. Can you just drop me off for the train? And say, how long have you got? And I'm like, oh, six minutes. And it's like, it's up the road. But it is six minutes. And he's like, why are you? Because then it puts the pressure on him. He's like, why are you doing this to me? Like, why do we have to leave in six minutes? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't <laughs> know why. Like, it just, it's like, I can't make it important to me until it is. And this is not. By the way, I'm not talking about everything in my life. Like, this is just certain sort of elements of it. But it was like, because I was a kid who academically did really well, but in my parents' evening, it would always be, she's really easily distracted. I love talking to people. It was like, I don't know as well. I, I always realised as well, it's like, why, Amber, do, does everything have to feel fun for you to do it? Why does it have to feel like... You need to focus. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, little things like uh, I've got a lot better at being aware of this, but I do interrupt people quite a lot and not really realise why. And I used to think, like, I know I'm not a rude person. I like to listen to people. Like, why is it that I can't stop it from happening? And I know why, because now I've become a lot more self-aware to understand what's going on and what's going on up there when I've do that is because I'm so scared I'm going to forget what it is I want to say and it's like a compulsion where I'm like I kind of have to get this out now because I'm going to forget like I don't trust myself to remember which is a weird thing I've had to work through that Um, makes sense though more sense than when other yeah that makes sense yeah 
But the, the biggest things is obviously, you know, the kind of last minute thing, thriving under pressure, the frustration of not being able to kind of like be organized in certain ways. And like I say, just kind of feeling a bit like there's a ball of chaos, like, <laughs> and just wanting a bit of balance in that. And look, the part that frustrates me a lot is, and I've had this kind of feedback from certain people is like, well, a person like you couldn't have ADHD because you have a good job and you've done well. And, you know, like it's so not true. And that just makes it so much worse. Like, you know, even coming on here, I knew we were going to kind of bring it up and talk about it. And this is the first time I've ever sort of talked on like a, you know, like a publicy forum, I suppose, about it. And public key. It, Cheers, mate. That's a great compliment, public key. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, because I've talked to like... I know what you mean, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. What I mean, I've talked to colleagues about it and stuff, <laughs> but not, you know, on a, on a public thing. And it does go through your mind and you're worried where you're like, well, if you're admitting to this stuff, like are people not going to want to work with you? Are they going to think that you are chaotic? Is it going to distract from things and make make it more difficult? But... For me, you know, in this journey of understanding, like, why I think I might have it, it also is the things that you're really good at. <laughs> it is also, like, you know, the fact that I am a person that, you know, I mentioned earlier with how it played out with Hometown is a good example. Oh, when I get in the idea zone, oh, my God, I'm obsessive. I'm fixated. Creativist, I will, yeah, yeah, creative, yeah. Detail-orientated. I'm really lucky to have an amazing partner who notices these things because he's like, you know, even when it comes to like planning holidays, I will find the restaurant with the best view. I will spend hours, hours looking into, you know, I love that. I love like research, detail, depth. You know, I'm really that kind of person. It's hyperfixation, but then on other things, so it's nothing. Yeah frustrating yeah. that I can't commit to things and be disciplined and like habits yeah. are really difficult for me as well so it's like you want the structure to the creative chaos that's the yeah. kind of like journey I've been on and why I still really want to try to get someone to work with and it isn't necessarily with a view to okay I want medication that's going to completely turn a switch on like I am a kind of person that I would like to work with someone to try to understand coping mechanisms and structures and like a plan that I could put in place that could help me before just sort of jumping to medication or something straight mm. away. But it's always been there is what I would yeah. say. Yeah. If ADHD was a song, it'd be zero to a hundred by Drake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's yeah. true. What's really frustrating as well, Freddie, I saw like a female journalist post about recently getting diagnosed with ADHD and something that's frustrating is, and, you know, when I brought up to my parents, they kind of said a similar thing. People are like, yeah, yeah, but you weren't running around like a crazy kid when you were younger. You know, you yeah, weren't. People associate yeah. it, obviously, with it manifests very Loud ADHD in young yeah. boys than it yeah. does in young girls. Like women, and they tend to have inattentive form of ADHD, not hyperactive. Yes. So it manifests completely differently. And so, yeah. yes... I mean, honestly, I could go on about it a lot, but it's... Um... No, you're right. It, I've spoken to quite a few females about ADHD and you're completely right in how it presents. It presents a lot quieter in their behaviours. It presents differently. It doesn't mean it's better or worse, but it presents differently. They're able to perhaps be more high functioning as teenagers or young girls than boys are because ADHD in young boys presents quite loudly most of the time, stereotypically. And you'd also be surprised how many musicians I've spoken to or creatives, I'd hate using that term, but 
people who are very creative have ADHD or suspect they might have symptoms of it. Yeah. Yeah, because you you generally have quite a rich inner world. Like your imagination is quite a big part of how things work. And you know, when I was saying about needing things to be fun, I don't mean that in some kind of trivial way, like, oh my God, I just want to have fun all the time. Like, it's not that. It actually is because motivation and dopamine works differently for someone yes. with ADHD. It's really hard to kickstart the same motivation mechanism as it is for other people. And it's why sometimes, you know, people with ADHD are more prone to like addiction or risky behavior mm. and impulsiveness is a big thing. Mm. So I've kind of tried to find ways to make, you know, I don't know, finally getting through that pile of washing really fun or do, you know, I know that I work better when I just try to, you know, break things down into easier tasks or yeah, like I say, kind of try to get my outlook differently on things but I have to do that it's not enough for me to be mm. like I know I need to do that I should do it I live on my own and I always have a podcast or YouTube show slash interview on when I do chores so then I actually enjoy doing it sometimes I wait till I have a podcast and then do the chore so I have the podcast with it that sounds really weird but that's what I do sometimes I'm like, I won't do that chore until Monday when my podcast refresh and then I can do the washing up after that yeah that's habit stacking <laughs> Oh, I'm weird sometimes. Anyway, um, well, yeah. With the assessment, what do you hope to achieve with it? Validation, relief, confirmation, something else entirely? Well, obviously, there's an element of confirmation because knowledge is power in understanding yourself. But honestly, I am at a point where even if somebody turns around to me and says, Amber, you don't have ADHD, I know that there's still these things that I need help with. You know, because a lot of this stuff is it's very personal. It's very sort of invisible in some ways. It's only your insights you have into your own mind. I relate to this stuff and there is a barrier here for me and it has always been there. So for me, like I said earlier, it's not about jumping to sort of medicate myself or whatever. Mm. It's kind of I would like to work with a coach, ideally, you know, to understand Again, you know, it's not kind of trying to overturn my life and transform it. It really is in the day to day that I would like to kind of try to, you know, just get habits, certain habits in place and know how I can motivate myself to do certain things that are more difficult and, you know, continue to harness the real good points and and sort of amplify those but yeah it would be because I think I've really understood the importance of like mentors and stuff and people to kind of work with that understand Mm. you and that's a real challenge of being in the freelance world and going it alone is you don't have a team around you and if you do have ADHD or even just any of these struggles it's so hard as well when you don't have deadlines because I could just sit here all day if I wanted to couldn't I so I have to set myself deadlines in order to kick start something in my mind to actually get things done Mm. and again that maybe most people have to do that but it is extra hard when you're a freelancer and you're doing everything on your own and as a final question amber if you could go back and talk to the amber who was stuck in the middle of that very tense standoff between angry teenagers the amber who was feeling pretty anxious whilst working at the bbc or the amber who was feeling overwhelmed in your phrase struggling to adult and struggling to get out of bed sometimes what would you say to her knowing what you do now um I think a little bit of what I said earlier, which is the number one thing, is just that I am way more resilient than I give myself credit for. You have good intentions for other people 
and for yourself. And even if that imposter syndrome thing comes up about you not being qualified for this, I mean, are we ever really fully qualified for something? Like everybody is mm-hmm. blinding their way through life, I think I've realised. And, you know, the, all the best people, you know, I don't know if you know much about like Brené Brown, but she talks a lot about people that kind of live in the arena and sort of put themselves out there to do really vulnerable things. And like, I think even just sometimes when I look back on like hometown or certain series and things that I'm working on, you know, it is obviously really, yeah, it's part of your job, but it's quite difficult to put yourself out there to public scrutiny, no matter how courageous and qualified you are. These things are just tough, like they're hard. And I think the more I've understood, you know, because it's not just like, how will this be perceived? It's like, do I sound shit? You know, was that interesting? Should I have been more engaging? Should we have got, you know, more access of this, this and this? It's a bottomless pit of, you know, constantly critiquing yourself. And I think I've learned a lot about, you know, emotions and kind of like how they're stored in our body and things. And I found these things massively helpful for me because as I'm doing things, I do have an emotional job, no matter what it's always going to be tough you're talking about really sensitive things and you you take on those emotions sometimes but I've learned that like meditation breathing you know walking understanding that this stuff does get stored in my body has actually been really revolutionary for me it's really really helped me and I think just just finally understanding that yeah it's about the journey it's not about the outcome and I'm okay I'm getting better, I should say, at allowing myself just to make mistakes and like learn along the way. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Amber, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and a chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? You know what? This year in general has been the best of my life for mental health I would say and I think it's probably because I am just not applying too much meaning to things that I'm doing and that doesn't mean I don't care about them and I'm not trying really hard it's just I am approaching kind of trying to develop an approach where it's like right I do this project I do my job kind of see myself as a professional doing it not like bringing so much amber to everything has really helped the mental load for me. Another thing I've been doing like really well this year is like prioritizing good eating. And I've understood a lot about as women, you know, balancing our hormones and eating like meals that are really nourishing and have like, you know, lots of different, you know, like you have a balance of like protein, fat, carbs on your plate really helps your blood sugar this is I could talk about this all day I'm really fascinated by like gut health and things but it truly has helped me so much because obviously as we know now anxiety begins in the gut so making this stuff a priority I've really started to feel the benefits in my day-to-day mental health and just mood which is great. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Mm, Quite young, really young. (laughs) I would say it was like a feeling of loneliness that I used to have, which was quite weird because I've always been an extremely extroverted person, like even from being young. Clearly. And always had... (laughs) 
Well, always had like, you know, friends and been around people and stuff. But like, it was weird. I used to feel like a bit lonely when I was younger. Mm. And at first, like, I remember being like, this doesn't make sense. Like, that was my like my first level of questioning about it, I would say. So yeah, quite early on, I've always been quite receptive to my feelings and sometimes to other people's feelings as well, which is a good and a bad thing. Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like on the one hand, a big burden or a big weight had been lifted off your shoulders? On the other, something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? God, when what when actually would I say that was? Hmm, I think actually it was a conversation I had with my mum. I mean, I definitely wouldn't have recognised that this was mental health as such, but it was. <laughs> it's such a random conversation to bring up, but it was when I was talking to my mum for the first time about why, as an Asian girl, we are a lot hairier than other girls right it's gonna sound so random but it's like a normal conversation you have with your mum when you're younger at some point about like shaving for the first time or whatever it might be but what I didn't realize it was the first kind of conversation about like shame yeah that that sort of sense of shame like in your own body and feeling different and not feeling enough and and all those sorts of things and you know my mum is quite like a a glam mum you know who is sort of you know, she she still looks really good and, you know, puts a lot of effort into, like, how she looks and things. And I don't know, I kind of look back on it now. Actually, it came up. Like, the reason why it's in my memory fresh is because it came up with a friend the other day. And she was saying to me, I'm getting married this year. And she said to me, oh, before, you know, you get married, are you going to maybe, like, would you get anything done? Like, you know, would you want to get anything, like, done to your face? She wasn't saying I needed it, but she was just asking me, because she works in the medical field, and she was saying a lot. Sales pitch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. A lot of women, before their wedding, will come to her and say, you know, can I have a little bit of Botox for this, this, and this? I was like, well, I've never, ever had anything, and I've got to be honest, it's never intrigued me to have. And I was like, I think I've got to a place in understanding this like internalized shame we have as women over like our body and things like that. And I realized, yes, if you have a massive insecurity or something that you really want to kind of sort out, then I can totally see how it would help. But I know that if I go down that path of, okay, I'm not happy with this, because like anyone, of course, there's stuff Mm. I'm not happy with. (laughs) Well, how is it possible to not be? I'm striving for perfectionism. I'm striving for perfect. And that is not an attainable thing for me. And it just, it reminded me of that conversation. And I think as women, a lot of our mental health can revolve around this striving for like perfection and how we look. And it seems like there's increasing pressure than ever to kind of change things about yourself and be different. But yeah, it just, it made me, I I brought up that conversation to her where I was like, you know, I think back to that time of, how we internalize the shame for the first time like as women and I want to try to push against that if I can and not strive for like perfection. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment or have you not figured all of them out yet? Um, It comes from the imposter syndrome stuff really. It comes from I would say like I get triggered by And this is why if I worked out this ADHD stuff, it would really help. It's like this sense in my life that I'm like, I'm really, really good at this stuff and I can't do this stuff. And having that 
unhealthy sort of like attitude in your life really weighs you down sometimes because it's not it's like very black and white thinking on life mm. to be like well I'm maybe I'm really good at this and you know that also is an unhealthy pressure that you're should be really good at something all the time and then there's certain things you're just not good at and I had to really like reframe my attitude towards fitness for example because I must have built up a belief in my life from being a kid that I am not good at fitness. I'm not a fitness person. I can't do it. I would be like, oh, you know, people who are like really into the gym and like boring or they're really like people, because my partner's like I'm this. offended. I'm offended. No, no, <laughs> but nobody doesn't say anything about you. It says something about mm. me. That's what I'm trying to say. That's me. That was me projecting my fears about things onto people who have really healthy habits. I'm not like this now, by the way, I'm bringing it up because it's this black and white attitude sometimes I've had in my life, I think was contributing to the anxiety. Because if you're telling yourself in in your subconscious, I can't do certain things, that's a really limiting belief to be carrying around with you. So yeah, I can't remember what your question was. Hopefully that answers. No, triggers, mate, but don't worry, you answered it. To be fair, in my defense, I also had that same viewpoint that you used to have. But I used to think that because there was guys I went to at university who literally went to the gym and they actually did become boring. So I was like, why am I going to do that? I just going to become boring. And then I went to the gym and I was like, oh, this is actually amazing for my self-esteem and my mental health and da 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 da. So yeah, I completely changed I mean, my mindset. So yeah. It is. I love exercise. And it's like mm. people who would think the same the opposite way that if you don't, oh, you're just really lazy. There are people who are, mm. you know, oh, God, they're so unmotivated. Like, it's not the case. We just project a lot of our fears onto people. We talked about positive tools and methods. So what is the best book, or as I call it on this podcast, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. It can be fiction. And if you can't think of a book, maybe a podcast or a play or a TV show or any piece of popular culture. Oh, man, so many. But... I would say the number one has to be No Bad Parts by Richard Schwartz. I think I've mentioned this to you. This is basically based on a theory of psychology called IFS, which is like internal family systems. And essentially, it helps you to understand how all of us in our minds are made up of different parts of who we are. And by that, it doesn't mean oh, there's angry me, there's sad me, there's happy me. It's so much more sort of sophisticated than that. It's almost like personality types that are built up in our mind based on how we've been brought up. And, you know, we talked about limiting beliefs, for example. So there's not enough time for me to talk to you about all my parts. But Mm -hmm. what you do is you really get to know them and you get to listen to them. And this sounds crazy, right? When you try to explain it to someone, people would think, right, so you talk to your own voices. That sounds absolutely mental. But what it does is you realize, like, sometimes you don't understand where frustration might be coming from or ways in which you're not expressing yourself. And it really helps you understand the different, yeah, literally, quite literally the parts of yourself that are not being heard. And you sit with them and you hear them and you journal, and you reflect on things, and it's it's so empowering. I've just honestly, I mean, and I'm only still really surface level into it, but the way I've seen it radically help my partner, a friend of ours, and me in a sort of starting stage is, it's absolutely incredible. And the other one I will quickly give a shout out to is When the Body Says No by Gabor Mate. Yeah, the boy, the boy Gabor. Mm. I've got his uh, next book on my reading list, but he he writes yeah. absolute tomes, so I'm kind of doing a run up to it. 
because I know that his book will be about 400 pages in small print. So I'm like, yeah. rather read a couple <laughs> short books first. Do you know what I mean? So anyway, I've got two questions left, Amber. The first one is, if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? A mantra that sums up my mental health? Oh, Or approach to life, yeah. Well, I know one that sums up my approach to life, and that is fortune favours the brave. And by that, I don't nice. actually mean what people might think, which is, oh my God, I'm going to be so lucky because I'm so brave. Actually, it's um, in some ways the opposite. It is the courage to fail and fortune will come to you because you learn in this process. And honestly, you could apply that mantra to anything you want in your life. And I, and I regularly do it. You know, even when I'm trying to get myself out of bed, I will do countdown five, four, three, two, one and say fortune favours the brave. Because it is sometimes like we have to be brave to overcome ourselves. It's not like just being brave to like go for big work opportunities. It is literally even the courage to kind of say, I'm going to choose the difficult thing to get up and go for the walk in the morning, even though I don't want to, or to, you know, send the email about pay. Like I only used this last week to do something difficult that I really didn't want to do. And it isn't actually all about the like glam glossy stuff it's about like being in the pits with yourself and fortune favors the brave so if you're listening listeners shoot your shot is what amber is telling you <laughs> yeah indeed <laughs> <laughs> and as a final question this is another broad one what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if most importantly they want to do it yeah that is really important if people want to do it I mean just talking from experience like in the industry that I work in I think it comes back to what I said about create spaces for people to just express and like feed you know because it's not all about like oh let's just sit and talk about our feelings because like you say not everybody wants to do that and is comfortable to do or that or be helped by it <laughs> yeah or be helped well exactly mm. exactly but even if we create professional spaces and like moments and, and certain people like to have forewarning of this stuff and time to prepare and things like that, it's like, it just has to be put on the agenda. Like, I don't think it's enough to have, yeah, like a lot of companies now will have mental health teams you can call or someone you can call in a crisis. And it's like, okay, but then it's still only when it's got to like breaking point. Crisis, yeah, I don't think, yeah, yeah we're, we're getting it right with this just being in the day-to-day -day sort of proactive yeah 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 we're still at reactive aren't we in a lot, a lot of places I mean and obviously I, I I'm aware of like you know because like I said I we do a, I do a lot of reading about stuff and you know that people have different languages and the way that they like to be spoken like about things and I know we don't always necessarily have the time and like workspaces to learn all this stuff but I think if we could make space for it it would be so radical how much it could improve work things because it improves relationships like you know we've in our relationship understood each other's love languages and it's transformative because it's something so simple as understanding how somebody receives love and appreciation for example can really translate into a boss employee relationship a friendship a parent because it's all of life right so I think we need more like managers that do prioritize this stuff and on that note Amber Hack, it has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, pal. Thank you, Freddie. Really enjoyed that, mate.
Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking Pod. I want to say a big thank you to Amber for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with her. You can still watch Hometown Series 2. It is available to watch on iPlayer. So I'll put a link to where you can watch it and you can follow Amber on social media in the show notes. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about the podcast and vent and the work that we're doing. If you're feeling generous, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us, you can do so at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or you can buy a Vent t-shirt. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash eventshelpuk. I want to say a massive thanks before I sign off as well to everyone who has bought a ticket for Just Checking In Live at number four, take two. We are now fully sold out thanks guys it's going to be an absolutely brilliant evening we hope to check in with you again very soon and remember guys it is always okay to vent